Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. And don't forget, if you have any questions that you want us to spend time processing and answering, feel free to send those in to uh, info at grove.church. We uh, look forward to those at the last Friday of every month, processing through questions and spending some time having more dialogue about them than having rehearsed conversations. All right. So, and a quick little bit of, uh, I guess, inside baseball, if you want to if you want to learn about this. Uh, so today, this episode's dropping on a Monday, which might be odd because, you know, these normally drop on Sunday. Um, yesterday, our episode dropped, and I was uh, taking a look at that, and I took a look at our notes, and I realized that uh, we skipped a week. Oops. So, yeah. Oops. So, if you were listening uh, to the podcast yesterday, which was Sunday, and were thinking, wait, this isn't what I'm reading this week, uh, you were right. And we were wrong. You so, the gold star. Our, our bad. Um, so, we're uh, doing an emergency recording of this episode to get it out here uh, as quick as possible. And then uh, I deleted that episode, and then it's going to repost um, on this upcoming Sunday. So, if you're listening to this in the future, uh, this means nothing to you. Uh, but for those of we're you who are still glad you're here, yeah, we're still glad you're here and found it. But uh, for those of you who are following along week by week, that's what happened. Uh, so, just letting you know why in case you're confused about that. But with that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump in uh, to this week's Bible talk. Uh, We're going to kick it off with a highlight from the book of 1 Chronicles. And I thought it was really interesting when I was looking through uh, the chapters that we're talking about this week. So it's 16 through 20 are the chapters that we're reading. And there's there's not a lot kind of that's happening. It's a lot of kind of – when I was reading through it, I was like nothing stood out to me a bunch um, until – I looked a little bit deeper into this war with Amon that happens in chapter 19. And so here's what was t- just kind of set it all up. In Chronicles 19, it talks about how Nahash, the king of Ammon, dies, and him and David have been friendly with each other. Not that they're besties, but you know, as far as kings go, they're uh, they're being cool as far as... Yeah, uh, they're, they're good friends. Yeah. They were... They've helped each other out a little bit here and there. Helped each other out. They're not attacking each other, which really, when you're talking about a foreign power, what more can you ask for? Um, But uh, David hears about the passing of King Nahash, and so he sends messengers to the king's son, Hanan. I'm not sure if I said that correctly, but here's hoping. Sounds good to me. um, To console him. And so Hanan is uh, a young king at this point, and he is really being led astray by his advisors, which, by the way, we're going to see this echoed in uh, the story of Rehoboam when we get there. So just a little little teaser for things to come uh, about young kings being led astray by advisors. Um, But the advisors say, like, do you really think that uh, David's just sending these people to, like, console you? Like, he's spying out the land. He wants to take over Amman. And uh, Hanan's like, dude, you're totally right. And so he does the worst thing that he could possibly do to anyone in history. He takes the messengers and he grabs knives and they shave their beards off, which as a proudly bearded man is, I mean, worse than death. So that's um, not really worse than death. I'm not proudly bearded. My beard's not nearly as luscious as Evan's, but it's there yes, though. to it's have it shaved connected. off against your will. That's a big deal. And it's, it's interesting to me because, just because of the difference in culture, but so the the um the messengers come back and David hears that they've um been shaven and so he tells them like hey just stay in Jericho until your beards come back you don't have to you don't have to be ashamed in front of Jerusalem and they're like oh thanks man like it's really just, I think David was just like I'm not interested in seeing your baby faces so <laughs> my, wait till it grows back my mighty men will not be baby faced um but so anyways essentially uh 
the king of Ammon allies with the king of Syria, and they declare war on Israel. And so David um, is not having any of it, and he sends his two uh, best generals, Joab and Abishai, who are the brothers and sons of Zeruiah. You'll recognize Joab because he comes up all the time. Uh, Abishai, maybe not as much, but Abishai is really cool. And when I, uh, you know how when you're a kid, like you have to have favorites of everything, like it's just something you're compelled to do. And maybe this was just me. Just you. Just me? Okay. No, I totally get it. Okay. So like when I was a kid and I read about the sons of Zeruiah, I had to pick in my head, which is my favorite one. And I picked Abishai. So, I just want to point out real quick, there you go. as a kid, you read about the sons of Zuri, however you say his name. Dude, I had as a kid, I was out playing football on the street. I had my favorite sport. I didn't have a favorite. How dare you, son of the Zuri. Z? Listen, of, we'll call him Z. They're awesome. Agent Z. Um, but anyways, all these things happen, and so really in the in the story of First Chronicles, all it talks about is Joab and, and, and Abishai each take on the separate army. They work strategically to separate the armies, and they have this plan where. We're both just going to fight. If one of us is being overcome, then another part of the army is going to come and back each other up. They're acting like brothers. They're acting like generals. It's, I mean, it's it's good, sound military strategy is what they're doing, right? Um, and then looking at it, I thought it was really interesting because one of the notes was that the chronicle, chronicler omits the story of David and Bathsheba. And I was like, oh, well, that's, what's that about? And so I go into Second Samuel and I realized this battle that's taking place in First Chronicles 19 is actually the same battle that's taking place um, when David and Bathsheba's thing is going on. And so it's just a really interesting picture of um, in this story, it is kind of conspicuous that David's not there. He's not leading his people. It's Joab and Abishai are leading the armies of Israel, which normally would be the king because the king of Ammon is there and the king of Syria are both there. They're leading the armies. Um, and it's, What's going on at this point is that, and I guess just to recap the story of David and Bathsheba, if you haven't heard it before, um, the armies are gone. All of David's mighty men are gone, which David's mighty men were just his closest um, bodyguards, essentially. And most his of best them, men. Yeah, and they're called mighty men for um, for a reason. Like they're killing giants and slaying lions in a pit on snowy. Like they're just, they're awesome guys. Um, and so David sees... Uh, from the rooftop of his palace, one of the wives of his mighty men uh, bathing. And so we basically, we don't know too much about it, but they end up having an affair. Um, she becomes pregnant. And to cover it up, David invites Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men. Which is her husband. Yeah, which is her husband, back from the battle. And he says, hey, man, like you've been doing awesome. Why don't you just take a breather, go home, be with your wife for a little bit, and uh, and then go back to the battle after that. Because he wanted to act like the son that was, or the child that was going to be born was going to be his. Well, Uriah is so loyal to to David and so loyal really to, to his men that he's leading. He's like, well, how can I go home? Um and enjoy just being home with my family when the rest of my men are out fighting. And so it says he actually sleeps on the doorstep and refuses to go in. Um, and so when David realizes he's not going to be able to cover it up, he sends Uriah back with a message to Joab and he tells Joab, hey, make sure that Uriah is on the front lines. And then when the fighting gets really bad, pull back so that he and his men are surrounded um, and killed. And it's interesting because when we talk about the story, we always talk about how uh, David uh, – kills Uriah or at least arranges for it to be killed, but he actually arranges for a lot of people to be killed because mm -hmm. um, it's not just Uriah who's there. It's Uriah and the people around him when all of a sudden the rest of the forces draw back. And we see this interesting picture of at the end of the day, this is a triumph of Israel. This is people, two Kings uniting against Israel and they're put down pretty, 
pretty quickly from the sound of it in the, in the Bible. The generals are both put to death. Um, it, it lists out the numbers. I don't have them right in front of me. Um, and so we see this great moment of victory for David, the politician, in the midst of this great fa- failure of David, the man. And I think it's just a really interesting juxtaposition of, of, of what's going on and, and really just and we talked about this so much with Saul. We're going to keep talking about it with David. We're going to talk about it with Solomon because really this is the theme of most of the kings. Well, eventually we get to the point where the kings just all suck and they're evil. But at this point, they're not. Um, they're not the worst. They're just. They have high points. They have low points. They have moments where they're serving God. They have moments where they don't. And this is a great picture of one of those moments where, uh, again, this is a triumph of David in one sense, but also a great failure in another sense. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, we see it in almost a repetitive fashion throughout throughout the, the entirety of Scripture, but also throughout the human history. I mean, it's it's not to, to minimize or become insensitive to the realities of sinfulness and our human disposition. It just reminds us that, that we have a great need for a Savior. Um, and, and I think it is an interesting point, because I didn't know that until you brought it up, Evan, that uh, the Chronicles admits the Bathsheba and David account, but also that this battle was was the one going on, yeah. which is... Really I didn't know either. Thank goodness for uh, study Bibles with hey. notes on the bottom. <laughs> it's, it's all about learning. So uh, I want to jump into a psalm that for me is very familiar, uh, and it's the, it's the 23rd Psalm, which I remember as a, as a five-year-old kid, uh, shout out to Royal Rangers back in the day when I was involved. If you don't Dude, know Royal Rangers, Rangers was the bomb. I got oh. I got up to the rank of Buckaroo, dude. Show off, thank you. Um, but if you don't know what Royal Rangers is, it's uh, I call it a Christian uh, version of Boy Scouts that I would argue is better because I'm a Christian, whatever. There's a lot more biblical principles. Um, but I, I grew up in that's what actually kept me in church when I lived in Virginia, different seasons of my oh. life. Uh, and so I made it through Straight Arrows, which is the youngest, and this is where I had to memorize the 23rd Psalm. So I remember as a kid memorizing this Psalm. And, and there's a really good book I want to give uh, kind of a quick plug to that if you are into book reading and you are into to good reads, especially as it breaks down different scriptures or passages, um, there's a book called Grace in the Valley by Heath Adamson. Heath, if you're listening to this, love you, appreciate you, bro. Um, that'd be awesome if you listen to us, but I doubt it. Anyways, uh, that's a really incredible book that literally takes the entirety of 23rd Psalm and kind of breaks down this psalm in such a very significant and compelling way. Uh, and Heath makes a statement uh, and a, a quote I want to read about this psalm when it was written, when it was penned by David early on after he was anointed king by Samuel, and then Saul was sending men to kill him. The same bodyguards that should be protecting David were actually the ones sent to kill David. Um, and so David's hiding in a in a cave in, in the Hereth wasteland, which is barren and literally just dead. It's just dry and barren. But he says this um, regarding the rabbis from the Jewish context that during this time, David was actually starving to death, uh, meaning he was about to die. He was losing weight at a very rapid rate, uh, and he was surrounded by his enemies in, the, enemies in the valley of the shadow of death. And this is where Psalm 23 comes off of his lips. This is where he pens the words of Psalm 23. Uh, and another thing to note when it comes to the 23rd Psalm, uh, and just Psalms in general, uh, I thought was a really unique and interesting insight. Um, you'll see sometimes under the the chapter reference and even a little bit of context about some of the Psalms, but then sometimes you'll see for David, they read of David a Psalm or they read a Psalm of David. Each each phrase has its own meaning in, in regards to why David wrote them or the context with which David wrote them. And so real quick, if you see it says that of David, comma, a Psalm, it literally means that David found himself in the very presence of God and this is his response. So 
he's sitting in the presence of God and he's penning the words that you're writing. Or if you see a, a, a phrase called a Psalm of David, it literally is David singing about things that he wasn't experiencing in the moment. So it was almost a faith-filled moment. He was crying out to the Lord in faith, believing God was going to hear him and answering him, even when he did not feel or sense God's presence or felt like God may be far from him. Uh, and so the 23rd Psalm is actually referred to as a Psalm of David, meaning he's writing words that he doesn't yet experience. He's not living in the very presence of God, experiencing God's goodness and faithfulness, but it was drawn from a deeper well of having known God and having trusted God and having seen God's faithfulness throughout his life that in a very dry and barren place, he pens the words of Psalm yeah, kind of reminding himself to yes. have faith and to trust in God. It's almost like you're stirring yourself up. Like, mm-hmm. okay, God, I need you to move. I've seen you move. And now I feel like I'm quoting a song, but I believe you're going to, like, I believe you're going to be faithful. I believe you're going to be promised. Um, and, and so it's with that in mind, I just want to read, I want to read the entirety of the Psalm because it's only six verses. Um, but it's, again, it's this reminder for you and I that David was not experiencing God's presence. David was not experiencing God's fullness and fulfillment of who he was, but he was believing he would. And so he says this, uh, Psalm 23, verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's sitting in a cave starving to death. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, saying, God, you're enough for me. Um, and then he continues on says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And one of the points that Heath makes in the book that I, don't, I couldn't really find leading up to today, but I remember it vividly was sometimes when we're in this journey and this pilgrimage with God that he makes us lie down. We don't like to be still and know that he's God. We don't like to pause in our moments or in our seasons, our life. We want to continue moving forward, but sometimes God has to make us lie down and rest besides still waters because that's where, once he does this, it's where he restores our souls. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse three says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, statements of faith, statements of, of belief that God will be faithful. God will provide And then he says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The point, I I wish I could literally spend an entire podcast talking about this because the point that Heath is making in this book that is so powerful is is so good talking about the invitation and the community and the the, the, not just come and have community, but stay longer than than you would have anticipated. Uh, And then just the hope and the promise of surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it's interesting. And it's such, dude, I just love this psalm. And I wish at five years old I had the depth of the context because I think I probably would have remembered it quicker. <laughs> but I think it's such a, a beautiful picture of the psalm of David who is not experiencing God's presence in a dry and barren place, which I think is applicable to many of us at any point of our lives. But it's a reminder that God is faithful. It's a reminder that God hears us and it's out of the depths and the riches of our walks with him we can remember um, this. And early on in David's kingship, we see a very high moment, a very big highlight about his reliance on God. And then we can look fast forward to even what we just heard of in First Chronicles, a very low moment right. um, in the context of that low moment. It's, so. it's interesting to me how so many of the Psalms are um, they're, they're written in moments of extreme depths of just – I would even say depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, one of them, it's, um, you know, my tears are my only food, which on the one hand is like, that seems a little bit overdramatic there, David. But <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like... Um, I'm pretty I, sure that was a psalm of David, not of David a psalm. So, uh, but I think there's... I, I, one of the most beautiful things about the psalms I love so much is it really captures 
the human experience of mm-hmm. being with God. Um, because it really, it almost comes across like David's just like schizophrenic where like, it's like one Psalm is God. You're so good. I love you. Next Psalm. Why have you forsaken me? Oh father. Next song. I knew you'd never leave me or forsake. Like, it's just interesting how, um, yeah. it really does capture the ups and downs of life really. Mm-hmm. And how you see it with David. And I think it's such a comfort to us today as Christians. Like, yeah, there's some days where, um, I feel like me and God are like this, that was bad radio. I have my fingers crossed. Uh, but like, yes, can you see that? Put it close to the mic. Like we're like this. Um, but and then there's other days where like, man, it just feels far, and I'm discouraged, and I'm, I'm just down. And, and I think it's a cool thing to see that demonstrated in the Psalms. Um, and to go to the exact opposite of the passage we just read, which is which is a beautiful kind of abstract thought of um, of our relationship with God in First Timothy. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that. So much of the letter is practical advice for a pastor. And it's um it's we're, I'm gonna contrast it later with Second Timothy because the two letters are very different, even though they're written by Paul to the same person within a couple of years of each other. But in First Timothy, it's kind of like um kind of just advice. Like it'd almost be the same advice, like if you were taking on the same career as your dad and your dad was kind of sitting you down and saying like, here's some things to look out for. Here's like, you know, the way to, to do things well. Um, and I just want to read, like, it's just a really quick passage. And and again, it's it's not one of these things that's going to be deep and emotionally moving, but I do think it's it's cool to just look at what are the issues that were arising in the church? Some of them are very applicable today. Some of them not as much, where it's maybe not things that we uh, struggle with or work through. And then what are some of the ways that Paul is encouraging Timothy to deal with them? So in 1 Timothy, I'm just going to read verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make and to make some return for their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of god she who is truly a widow let her all alone has set her has set her hope on god and continues in supplications and prayers day and night but she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives command these things as well so that they may be without reproach but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, which that's a strong, that's yeah. a strong verse. Um, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up her children, has shown hospitality and has washed the feet of saints and has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. And so, there's a lot of stuff in there, um, but here's a couple of different things that's going on. Like the first section is saying, as a pastor, and I would argue as just Christians in general, um, he says, don't rebuke older men, but treat them as you would a father and treat them as you would, like, even if you know that your father is in the wrong, how would you treat that person? And it's interesting how he applies it to treat older women like they were your mother, treat women who are about your age, like their sisters, treat men who are about your age as brothers. And he just kind of goes through these all different things, but um, essentially give people the benefit of the doubt, treat them with respect, treat them the way that you would treat a member of your own family, which I think is a great message for us today. Well, and I think we got to be careful too, because we read our culture, our context, because I think of having been in youth ministry for 10 years of my life, how would students treat their fathers? You know, nowadays the perception is students don't know how to treat their parents. They, yeah, they, they dishonor, they disrespect, but it's what's the proper way to treat fathers? What's the proper way to treat our sisters and our brothers? How is the proper way to treat our mothers? And that's that's some some of the tension too is like 
Paul is basing the assumption, Timothy, you know what I'm referring to. You know how to live righteously. You know how to have mm-hmm. righteous relationships. But let me give you some more practical context. So Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I think the second part, the second chunk, I think is really interesting too, because he's saying it's important to take care of widows. Or in other words, it's important to take care of particularly older women whose husbands have died. And especially back then in that culture, um, it was much harder to be self-sufficient as, as a single woman just because so much of the work was, it was just different. Um, and so the church really was responsible for helping take care. But then there's this really interesting practical section where it's not just, hey, take care of everyone. It's saying, look, if a widow comes to you and she has children and she has grandchildren, you don't need to make the church take care of her. What you need to do is talk to her children and grandchildren and basically say, you need to take care of your mom. You need to take care of your grandmother. Like this is what God has charged you to yeah. do. And, uh, and and the the line is, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's an extremely strong line, but I think it's important. It says, um, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Or in other words, if you are not taking care of your family, if you're not taking care to the people who God has entrusted you with their care, he literally says you've denied the faith, which is, I mean, that's a strong statement there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's brutal. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I hope my, because I'm selfish and I'm hope, I hope my mom never passes away. So I don't have to worry about this. <laughs> um, not that I don't want to care for her, but there, there is this like, how, and how many families do we interact with? Or do we hear like the kids have stepped out of the picture as their parents have gotten older or they're right. taking advantage of their parents because they're older and not as, not as well astute or in mind. So that's brutal. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's just really, and, I, and again, this isn't one of those things where I have like a big message that I want to share or a big point. I just think it's really interesting. And I would encourage all of us as we read through first Timothy, read through it with this lens. Um, that Paul starts off with, number one, it's important to care for widows. And I think all of us would agree that like there's people in our in our church today who we need to care for. Um, but he's also saying it's not just about the church blindly helping people. It's about also charging members of the church or charging people with the family to also take care of their own responsibilities. And, and the rest of the chapter kind of continues on uh, with similar things. But I just wanted to highlight the first 10 verses, because they stood out to me as being, it's just being an interesting uh an interesting point that Paul is trying to make. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think the other thing too, is we have to come into the lens of hearing even some of these epistles in Paul's writing to pastors, uh, that there's a certain way we all need to be understanding. We are called to be ministers of the gospel. We're all called to pastor in some way, shape or form with the gospel and the good news. And there is some weight and responsibility that we get to carry, whether we are quote unquote, a pastor of a church or we're a follower of Christ relation like this, this filter too, with the relationships and the dynamics of people and widows it's all of our responsibility to shoulder yeah. and lead together. Um, one of the, the highlights I want to take uh, out of Second Samuel in our reading this week um, is is kind of focusing a little bit on the uh, the start of a division among David's family. And, and I want to be careful because I, I was I, Evan and I were talking a little bit earlier about how I feel like David. We've talked like about David like crazy. We've talked about Saul like crazy. And I think one of the the few people that we've highlighted quite often, but it's it would be an interesting deeper discourse or dialogue at some point just personally is this this man named Joab who was in essence David's number 2 he and comes up a lot he, a in ton, the story of David ton. and and even there's some there's some different conversations with once David's on his deathbed and he gives Solomon the charge like there's so so many different things about this man named Joab yeah, we'll be talking about that yeah, in a few stay weeks stay tuned um 
But I want to take that a second Samuel chapter 14. Uh, this is after the Bathsheba and David incident. This is after uh, some of the, the battles that they've gone to. And it's really about David and his son. It's David versus Absalom. And the context here is David, uh, or David's son Absalom has a half-brother named Ammon who, in essence, finds Tamar, who's Absalom's sister. And now I'm mixing up my family trees. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so Absalom's sister Tamar, Ammon finds her attractive and wants to, to in essence, have his way with her. And or Ammon, sorry, Ammon's uh, best friend says, hey, well, what about this? Let's be deceitful and conniving and, and figure out a way to get what you want. He ends up taking advantage of her, and it says that Ammon's love for Tamar became hate after they had sex. And then Absalom finds out, and he's furious. He wants to kill Ammon. And so he devises a scheme, devises a plan to take over and take care of Ammon, get David's blessing to go out and and and, and have a conquest but bring Ammon with him, and ends up getting his servant. Let me stop. Absalom's servants are instructed to then get Ammon drunk and then kill him. And so all of this plays out and Absalom then flees. And so David hears about this and he's devastated. He, he says that as soon as he heard that his sons had been killed is what he was told. And that's, it was just Ammon, his, one of his sons tore his clothes in, in grief. And then David becomes angry with Absalom where David doesn't even want to see him. He now doesn't, he's angry. He's upset. It, Absalom has fleed. He's in hiding for three years. And Joab sees this. And it says in chapter 14, verse 1, that the king grieves and mourns to see Absalom. He wants to see Absalom. But he's also upset at Absalom. So he doesn't want to. So he's almost at war with himself. Joab then sees this and he devises a, a scheme and a trickery to get David to convict himself in a judgment by this woman who is called a wise woman of Tekoa. And he gives this wise woman, Joab gives this wise woman of Tekoa a, uh, the things to say to David. David then just or rules in favor of this wise woman of Tekoa to not let her son be killed by these other people uh, within this conversation. It's a story. And then at the end of it, the realization of this woman, David finds out like, now I understand your motive. Let me ask you, did Joab put you up to this? And she's like, how can I deny it? I can't deny it. Because it's true. Joab put me up to this, but you have convicted yourself by what you just said. And so David then relents. He then it's almost it's almost an identical moment that Nathan the prophet has with David when David is confronted with what he did to Uriah um, to cover up his tracks with Bathsheba. And so jo David finally gives in. He finally goes to Joab. And this is where I want to read real quick in 21 verse 23 of chapter 14. It says, so the king referring to David sent for Joab and told him, all right. Go and bring back the young man, Absalom. Joab bowed with his face to the ground in deep respect and said, At last, I know that I have gained your approval, my lord and king, for you have granted me this request. This says, Then Joab went to Geshur, which is where Absalom was hiding, brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. This is three plus years now. But the king gave this order. Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king. So on one hand, David is convicted by his own judgment with this wise woman of Tekoa. Then comes back to Absalom, says, fine, bring him back. Or to Joab, says, fine, bring Absalom back. And then he says, but I don't want to see him. So he not only makes a decision, we see this such, it's this high and low, this tension that exists in David where he has grief 
for Absalom, but also anger and unforgiveness towards Absalom. So not only does he bring Absalom back in, but then he says, I don't want to see him, which creates a rift between David and Absalom to where Absalom, then you'll read further in the stories in 2 Samuel, where we see that Absalom begins to gain favor with his charisma and his charm with the men of Israel. And all, and this is where the kingdom begins to flip into Absalom's favor. Mm. And David is then fleeing. Eventually, as you read further into the chapters, David then flees. And then there's a full-out battle between David and Absalom and David's men and Absalom's men that he has rallied. Absalom's sitting on the throne at one point. And it's, it's all, it all comes back to almost this moment where Absalom flees because he finds retribution and revenge, but then is outcasted and then brought back only to be, then be sequestered in, in a house like, but I don't want to see you. Uh, and so it's just interesting to me as you, as you read some of these things, the power of unforgiveness and the power of the tension of David's kingdom as we begin to see. And I would really say that David's reign began to fall apart prior to Bathsheba but really seeing all of it play out in regards to Bathsheba and the deceitfulness and the sinfulness and the the unforgiveness. And even in the midst of repentance, he's still called a man after God's own heart. And I know we've already hit this quite a bit, but it's just an interesting to see the kingdom fall apart and David's sons begin to lose uh, their power. Yeah. I think it's it's really interesting that we see um, just the harmful effects of the father son relationships with David. And really, most of the sons of David uh, fail greatly, and even Solomon fails greatly. Yeah. Um, and we see this kind of this failure of David um, to act as a good father in a lot of different points, and to really rein in. And it's kind of a similar thing that we see with with Eli, which uh, again, going all the way back to the first chapter of First Samuel, um, we see Eli is not a great father. He doesn't bring his sons into line. And ultimately that costs his family greatly. Um, and ultimately it costs David family, David's family greatly that he uh, is not a good father in, in, in that particular sense. Um, in almost the opposite sense, uh, if we go to Second Timothy, we see a different kind of father-son relationship. Um, Segway, and that was a great uh, segue. Thank you. Um, see, it's always I, I always, took notes, bro. I just took I, notes about. That I always one. feel the need to mark it when I make a good one, though, which just makes it a bad one. Um, but anyway, in Second Timothy, uh, we're running out of time a little bit, so I'll be I'll be quick. But it's it's a really interesting letter because it's actually the final letter that we have from Paul. And what I mean by that is chronologically, this is the last letter um, that he has written. And it's written um, right before his death. We don't know if it's days, weeks, months, but it's it's written with Paul fully knowing um, that he is he's about to be killed. And when you read First Timothy, again, so much of it is practical advice that he's giving Timothy, like, hey, here's how to be a good person pastor. Um, and in Second Timothy, his tone is very different, and it's not about practical advice for the day-to-day running of a ministry or, or, or a church, but really it's advice about, here's the big things that are going to come up. I'm not going to be able to talk with you very soon about these things. So here's almost last words. You can imagine it um, if you want to put it a different scenario in your head, it's almost like Paul's on his deathbed, and he's telling Timothy uh, these final things. And so, Second Timothy, the tone is very different, and a lot of the um, the major points that Paul is making is contend for the faith, stand strong, preach the Bible, uh, don't relent, and basically telling like just keep going until you get to the very end. And this is coming from a man who's gotten to the end uh, of his race, and he also talks about how there are false teachers that are going to come, and and Timothy's really being at at this point, Christianity had been around for long enough. 
that false doctrines were starting to come in. And all of a sudden, it, it went from being this pure evangelistic outreach where you're just going and telling people, here's what I know. But now they're also having to defend against other people saying, well, here's what Christianity actually is. And a lot of Timothy's ministry is going to be uh, rejecting the lies that are being told by false teachers. Yeah, I almost get the tone of uh, having had the privilege of, of navigating, having a relationship with so many uh, different individuals who have who have led and loved Jesus really well throughout all of their lives to where they're coming to the end of their life. It's almost that tone of, here's the things that I'll tell you that matter the most. Mm-hmm. Fight, stand firm, love Jesus, stay faithful. Uh, and like so, as, as we read Second Timothy, there is that tone, just to just to affirm that that the tone that you see and you're highlighting. It's it's almost just like, if I can say anything to you right now, this is what I would say. Yeah, and I think um, I, I've said this a few times, but one of the biggest mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is that we don't put ourselves into the situations of the characters that we're reading about. We just kind of glance over it, and so um, the final chapter I think is actually kind of emotional when you're reading it through the lens of Paul being aware that he's going to die. And, and and again, keep in mind, Timothy is Paul's closest friend, probably. Um, and friend is kind of an interesting word because it really is this father-son relationship where Paul has been mentoring Timothy for all these years. But he starts off, um, well, not starts off, but in, in verse nine, he says, do your best to come see me soon. And then he says a bunch of stuff, which is kind of interesting. He says, Luke is alone with me. Oh, get Mark and bring him with you for he's very useful to me in ministry, um, which is nice that you know, before Paul dies, him and Mark made up. So that's a good deal. Because if you remember, that's the whole reason him and Barnabas split. Um, he goes through a bunch of things. He's telling Timothy where everyone is. He's saying Tychicus is in Ephesus. Say that five times fast. Um, he tells him, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Uh, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Uh, he's just giving him some final pieces of advice. And then it ends with, in verse 21, uh, do your best to come see me before winter. And again, we can just read those, how it's sandwiched there, where he starts off with saying, do your best to come see me soon. And he ends it with, do your best to come see me before winter. And he does, he does go into some other things beyond that. But it is Paul saying like, Timothy, I'd like to see you one last time. Like before the end comes, before, I, I don't know if Paul knows exactly when everything's going down, but clearly he has some idea of like, come before it's, it's too late. Um, and then we never get to find out. If yeah. Timothy makes it back, which is kind of a, an interesting and sad detail to it. But um, I think it's it's this really sad, but in the same way, beautiful ending to their relationship. And this side of eternity, like I said, we're not going to know exactly how that relationship ended. But we see this side of Paul that we don't see in any of the other letters, really. Because in so many of the other letters, he's he's not writing to people, he's writing to churches. And even the letters he's writing to churches, it's very much like advice or in the case of Philemon, just saying like, hey accept this person back. And in Second Timothy, it really is this this final correspondence between a father and a son and um and the father telling his son, here is what's most important. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, it's, it's almost beautiful. Yeah, you said the word, it's beautiful. It really is. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, we're uh we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up for another episode of Let's Be- Read the Bible. Sorry, it went a little bit longer uh, this week, so we'll sign off quickly. Just yeah, remember, it is my fault. Uh, just remember, if you want to find our other resources, you can visit our website at grove.church, and then uh, you'll see the episode we already recorded on this Sunday as well. See you guys.